Open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Haggai. Haggai, as we go to chapter 2 this week. Haggai chapter 2. When I was a kid, even now, I liked the television show Gilligan's Island. I really did. I, uh, when I was really little, I, I had the little Gilligan hat, and I had shoes. And I remember when my feet got too big to wear these particular shoes that I thought were Gilligan shoes. I was devastated and cried for a day that I had to go get new shoes because I couldn't wear my Gilligan shoes anymore. I really loved Gilligan's Island. And in particular, I really liked the car. Do you remember the car? How many people remember Gilligan's little car? Okay, Gilligan had a little car, you know, for people that could not figure out how to get off the island. They came up with some really ingenious things while they were on the island. And he had this little car that he would pedal around. And I got it in my mind one day when I was probably six or seven years old that I wanted to have a car just like this. And so I went to my mom and dad and said, I want a Gilligan car. Can you make me one? Now that I'm a dad, I realize my dad had a great answer. He said, why don't you work on it? You know, he wasn't about to, to try and build whatever, however they did that. And I thought, okay, sure, I'll go build a Gilligan car. So I went out to the garage. He told me, there's some scrap wood out there. Knock yourself out. So I went out, and I found a two-by-four about this big. And I thought, that'd make a good bumper. And I'm on my way. I have the bumper to my car. And in my room, I had a bumper sticker. And I thought, this is absolutely essential to the car to have a bumper and a bumper sticker. So I put the sticker on, and I don't remember what it said, like beware of dog or something. But I put it on the, and I thought, well, there's step one. And I'm like, now, now what's next? You know, what, what, what would I do? I'm six years old, and I, I could not, you know, I, I didn't really know how to operate power tools. I probably would have, my dad would have stopped me at that point. But I never got any further than the bumper on my Gilligan car. And I was depressed. It was one of those days I sat there that whole Saturday afternoon. Just, it didn't turn out like I wanted it to. And as we go to chapter 2 of Haggai, the Jewish people, as they're rebuilding the temple, they come across something similar. In the first couple of verses, this is the the next message of Haggai. He says there in verse 1 and 2, God speaks through Haggai and tells him who to talk to, Zerubbabel and and, and Joshua and the remnant of the people. But verse 3 is where God kind of brings it all together for the people. He says this, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it as nothing in your eyes? God looks at the, the temple that they're building, and he asks them a, a couple of quick questions. It's been about three weeks since they've started building. So they probably have gotten a little ways on this temple. And God just asks them, what do you think about it? Is it everything you hoped for? Is it everything? Or is it, as he says here, is it like it's nothing? He's asking the ones especially that had seen the original temple. It's been 65 years since the first temple was destroyed. And so those that were old enough to remember the original temple, they're looking at this new one going, it's not all that great. It was kind of a depressing moment. There's, there's something here that, they, that Haggai doesn't bring out, but this was also the time of, of year for the harvest. They're bringing in the crops. And if you remember in chapter 1, God talked about it wasn't, you know, he, he, there was a drought in the land, so it wasn't a bumper crop. 
So they're bringing in the food. There's not much food. It's not turning out so well. The temple that they started to rebuild, it's not looking anything like they thought it was probably going to look. It's nothing like the original temple. And you can imagine, kind of like a six-year-old looking at the bumper to his Gilligan car. They're a little depressed. It's not going the way they want it to. And God doesn't mince words. He, he, he says it, yeah. Is it as nothing in your eyes? So what do they do? Spiritually, they've kind of hit this spot. And, and, and all of us, as we live our spiritual lives, if we're on a journey, we're trying to obey God. I don't have my whiteboard here anymore, but God's priority is our priority. We're trying to repent. We're trying to follow what he wants for us. But there comes times in our lives, in our spiritual walk of obedience, where things don't quite go the way we expect. There's a particular sin that we, we, we commit, and we don't want to commit it anymore. And we repent, and we say, God, please help me. I don't want to do this. And it may be a week, a month, a year that you're, you're going along fine, and then one day you do it again. And it's just a devastating experience. Or there's this prayer, there's this person, this relationship you have, and you're praying, God, fix this relationship with my son or my daughter or this coworker or, or, or somebody that you know, and it blows up. Or you, you get involved in ministry. You want to start teaching a class or do something you've never done before, and you have great expectations at the beginning. This is going to be great. I'm obeying. All these people are going to listen to my lesson, and you know these kids are going to think it's wonderful, and then the next thing you know, they're off in the back playing, and they're not paying a lick of attention to anything you have to say or something else. But it doesn't turn out the way you expected. Your spiritual life hits a setback. Well, what do you do? This is important because everybody's going to face this. If you haven't faced it recently, it'll come before too long. And this is an important point because what happens at that point when the spiritual setback comes, when things don't turn out the way you expect and when God is not acting in your life the way you think he should act, what are you going to do? There's many people in my, my years of ministry that I've talked to whose lives have gone down the toilet, so to speak. As I talk to them, and I can trace it back, it's a moment like this. They were going along, and there was a spiritual setback. How do they respond? God tells them here to persevere. If you look at the next verse, verse 4, be strong. He doesn't just let them, you know, sit there and whine and complain or whatever. He's telling them, listen, you're going to persevere. Persevere is something we see throughout the Bible. If you look in your worship guide, I have a little handout now that I've had out the past couple of weeks. That's actually not for during the service. It's for later on. You can do that this week if you'd like. But it's, I encourage you to look up the word persevere or overcome or endure. Because you see that word over and over, especially in the New Testament, as God speaks to his people, he says, listen, the setbacks are going to come, but persevere. In the book of Revelation, and everybody's familiar with Revelation and all the end times and all of those things, but before you get to that, the first three chapters, Jesus speaks to seven different churches. And all seven churches, he says in one fashion or another, to he who overcomes or he who perseveres. James talks about it in James chapter 1, when trial setbacks, those things come in our lives, persevere, endure. That's great, but how? Some of you right now, I promise you, you've, this is a big room with a lot of folks. Some of you are right there, you're at that position. You've been going along, and there's a spiritual setback. 
there's something that it's just it's not going right in your life and you're kind of hit that wall and it's almost like God speaking to you right now saying, how do you see it? How's your life going right now? There's a little truth to hear just as a side note to this passage with God, be honest. He's honest with the people here. He makes them face the reality. But he tells them to move on. And so today we're going to look at perseverance. I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of God's word. We're going to read the first nine verses of this chapter, chapter 2 of the book of Haggai. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all of you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Lord, I thank you for this encouragement that we see here in your word today. Lord, I know there are those this morning that are struggling and Lord, I pray that they would be blessed by hearing your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Here they have a setback. Unlike when God first spoke to them, it's not because of disobedience. It's not because they've sinned or done anything wrong. In this particular instance, they're obeying. They're doing what God has called them to do. But the results are not what they expect. And in our lives, when we repent, when we turn, we obey God, sometimes the results are not what we expect. The reaction that we get is not what we anticipated. But we are called to persevere, just as God calls the Jewish people to persevere in building the temple. And in doing it, God gives them three points here that he says well, how to do it. First, we persevere by remembering the covenant. Remembering the covenant. In verse 4, he gives them the commands. Be strong. He says it three times to the three particular groups of people. The, the, the political leader, Zerubbabel, the religious leader, Joshua, but then to everybody, to the remnant of the people. He says, be strong. It's uh, something we see God kind of encourage people throughout his word. Said it to, to Joshua after Moses uh, passed away and Joshua leads the people into the promised land. Is be strong. And then at the end of that, he says, work. Effort. Keep going. You've been building the temple. Don't stop. I know it's not, things aren't quite the way they are, but you need to press on. You need to persevere. And then he gives his first reasoning, and this is where he talks about the covenant. Work, he says, for I am with you. Remember, he already said that once when they first started. He reaffirms that, I am with you. According to that, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst, fear not. So God speaks to them, and he goes all the way back to the very beginning for the people. 
And he says, when I brought you out of Egypt, and then that's not this particular, these people that were alive, it's their ancestors. It's when Moses brought the Israelites out of Egypt. They went to Mount Sinai, and he gave them the law, the Ten Commandments, you know, Exodus and Leviticus and all of the, the ceremonies and everything that, the festivals and everything that they celebrated. And God, this was the, the old covenant that he gave them. And here he's saying, listen, by that same covenant, it's not, it's not over, it's not gone. Yes, you were taken captive by the Babylonians. You were in Persia. You're back here. Things don't seem quite like what you expect, but don't forget my covenant. And this is important. He's kind of saying to them, you may have failed. You may not have held up your end of the bargain, but I'm God and I'll always hold up my end. And he's reminding them when they hit this point, when they're kind of all over the place, kind of get back to the foundation of the covenant that I made with you. Now, we are New Testament believers. We don't have the old, we're not under the old covenant. It's gone. We have the new covenant that Jesus gave us when he died on the cross. He died on the cross. Remember, when he had the Lord's Supper, when he instituted that with his, his disciples, he said, the new covenant in my blood. And in much the same way, when we kind of hit that, that, that spiritual wall, when things are not going the, the way we expect, we're, we're following God, we're obedient, but things are not turning out, and we are called to per, uh, persevere, there are moments we've got to go back to the very beginning. This is why the Lord's Supper is one of those things that we do on a regular basis. It brings us back to that, that initial stage of who are we? Why are we doing the things that we are doing? Why are we obeying? When things don't make sense, why do we keep going? We go back to that beginning point and say it's because Jesus died on the cross and he's the Savior. He's my Lord. He's called me to do this. Yes, it might not always make sense. Yes, it may be difficult, but I continue to persevere. And God in the old covenant gave the Israelites various things that they, they, they did regularly that helped them remember this on a regular basis. Now, we don't have the temple and we don't have the sacrificial system, but there's some things that we have from the New Testament that we institute in our lives that we have to, to, to build ourselves up. It's like this cup. You know, you drink out of a cup, you get something to drink, and it fills you up, and it, it, you, you, you need something in it. But, of course, if I did this, now they move just a little bit. It's empty, by the way. Uh, everybody's not in the front row. It's almost like they knew I was going to do that this morning. You try and get something out of a cup that's empty, it doesn't work, right? To be poured out, you have to fill it up. Now, somewhere back here, if they didn't lose it, is my pitcher. You have a pitcher of water that you pour in there. It has to be filled to be poured out. Well, as believers, when we are called to be a drink offering, to be poured out, we need to be filled up. But if we live our lives constantly just emptying ourselves out without being filled up, there's nothing there, is it? It's just like an empty cup. So what are some of the things that we need to have in our lives to fill us up? Well, one is what you're doing right now. It's regularly gathering together as a body of believers to worship God. I mean, think of the things that we do when we gather together, right? We sing, we praise God. Do you normally do that throughout the rest of the week by yourself? Some people do, but a lot of people don't. This is one of the places where we gather together to praise God. We give. We give to what God has called us to give to so that we can do missions, so that we can do the service. We hear from the word of God. We read it. We talk about it. We discuss it when we live here or leave here. That's we gather together to build ourselves up. 
Another thing that we have are, we are, are smaller groups, the life groups that we have. Those are places where we can be a little more personal. We can share some things with each other that probably wouldn't work so well in a room this size. I doubt anyone in here wants to come up to the front and tell everybody their problems or what they've gone through this week. Any takers right now that would like to share with everybody some sins that you've committed? But in a life group setting, it's easier to do that. In a smaller group, we are told to confess our sins with each other. Another way is also just personal quiet times or family times where we worship at home. We're going to, hopefully by, by January, we have a new thing that we're going to have, and you'll see it out in the foyer and stuff, that helps families kind of build worship in their homes. Some of you are single. You do this just by yourself, too, as well. But we, we, we have these things in our families where we build each other up. We talk about what we're reading in the Word of God, some of the things that we're going through in our lives. But we go back to the covenant of who Jesus Christ is. What did he do? Why are we, you know, we give our lives to him and we're following him. Because if we, we lose sight of that, we, we get less like the Jewish people were here. You get off base. And God calls them back and says, listen, I'm still the God of the covenant. Jesus is still the Lord of our covenant. So point number one, we persevere by remembering the covenant. Point number two, we persevere by recognizing the power. Go to verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in. I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And so here he says to the people in verse 6, he starts to give them some of the practical ways this is going to work out. Now there's some questions about exactly how to understand what God is speaking to them here. But when he talks about shaking the nations, and then he starts to mention about all of the, the possessions, so to speak, the silver and the gold and the treasures, that God is going to do something to bring them what they need to build what they need to build. In other words, they're going to have the, 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 the temple that, that it's not quite what they're expecting, but how are they going to finish it? Well, God's saying, listen, I, my power will shake the nations. I will do what needs to get done to accomplish my purpose. It's amazing the power of God that, that can change things like that. Remember September 11th. Everybody remembers that, right? That are old enough to remember that. It was a Tuesday. And, uh, you know, the planes hit the buildings. They fell down, all the people. And, and the nation was just shocked. And I had been, me personally, I had been going to church, in this church in southwest or southeast Nashville for a couple of months. And so I kind of knew about how many people were normally at church on a Sunday. And the next Sunday, which was, what, five or six days later, I remember driving to this church and looking, and there wasn't a parking space to be found. And I pulled in, and just like I'm sure it was here, almost anywhere, I went into the sanctuary, and it was just packed, packed with people. And I sat down, and people were just, you know, they did, and the pastor got up, and he preached, and I'm sure he changed his sermon a little bit to deal with the tragedy, and there was just a sense of people. Now, it faded, we all know. By a couple of months later, it was kind of back to normal. But in that brief period of time, things changed. 
Now, I'm not sitting here trying to say God does this or that. Uh, what I'm saying is the power of God, things can change like that. And what God is saying to these people here is, listen, I can shake the nations. I am God. I am sovereign. There's nothing in this world that happens that I don't have control over. And if I want this temple to be what I want it to be, it, it will happen. If I need treasures to be there, they'll be there. Psalm chapter 50, verse 10 through 12, it says, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. There's always a little thing people, you know, pastors talk about, that every pastor has a resignation ready on Monday. And it's because it's the day after Sunday. You know, you just, you go to church on Sunday and there's just times where I'm sure you have it at your jobs as well. You have those moments sometimes where you, you wake up and you're like, well, you know, you poured your life into a sermon and, and the next somebody says, you know, pastor, I didn't like your shirt. It was really cold or, you know, this, it, it's not the response you were expecting. Or you get the little email talking about this, that, or the other thing and you just, if you're not careful, you can get depressed. And there's many pastors that talk about that. And I can't lie to you, after doing this for 12 years, there's been some days, now not all of them don't sit there and think, oh man, he's, he's ready? No, it's not that. But they're just, it's like anybody. You can sit there and just go, ah. And when I sense that, when I know that happens in my life, there's one thing that I'm aware of. I am focusing on my abilities. I'm focusing on what I can do. And I begin to see some of the, the things that I, I, I think God should accomplish or what he should be doing. Or then I begin to say, well, what do I need to change? How am I failing? What? And we begin to get so focused on us. And the Jewish people, I'm sure, were looking at this temple that they're building. They're saying, well, we can't build it as nice as the previous one. We don't have enough stuff. What, how are we going to go out and get the things that we need to get to make it? Well, how are we going to do this? Ah, let's give up. And God reminds them, listen, I'll shake the nations. There are moments in our, our lives collectively as a body of believers or individually where we kind of can go, how is this going to work, God? Our culture is going off the deep end. My family, whatever, is, it's falling apart. How can it? And God reminds us, listen, I can shake the nations. I can do it. But focus on my power. Focus on what I can accomplish not what you can. And so some of you this morning, it's, it's, uh, you've been depressed. You've been going through a spiritual struggle. My encouragement is look to Him, not to yourself, not to what you can do different, but just cry out to God and say, God, I need your power. I need your strength. Show it to me. There's one more point, and this is an important one. The last verse, verse 9. We persevere by realizing the goal. Verse 9, he gives two assurances about this new temple as compared to the former one. He says, the latter glory of this house, and here he's speaking collectively of the temple, both of them as this house. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. So the first assurance he gives is that this one, the glory is going to be greater. And then the second assurance he gives, in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. He gives these two assurances about the temple. And let's look at each individually. First, that the glory of this temple will be greater. Well, 
That doesn't probably make any sense to the people that are listening to this. Because in most every measurable way, it's not going to be the same. It's not as big. This temple, the second one that's built, gets expanded and enlarged 500 years later by Herod, around the time of Jesus. But it's not going to be, if you read the description of the first temple that Solomon built several hundred years before this one, I mean, it's, it's pure gold. You can see it from, I mean, it's big. It's, he had tons of money. It was at the pinnacle of the power of the nation of Israel. And here, this temple's smaller. It's not going to be as nice. The nation isn't nearly as powerful. In addition to that, there's this description of the first temple when it's built. Something called, the Bible, it's, it's called the Shekinah glory. The glory of God enters that first temple in such a way. In, in, in Kings, it says the priests couldn't even minister the way they needed to minister because the glory of the Lord is there. We never read anything like that about the second temple. Not to say it doesn't happen, but in every way that these people probably were thinking, when they hear God say the, for, or the glory of this house shall be greater than the former, they're probably going, how on earth could that be? There's one way. Luke chapter 2. Every year at Christmas we read about Jesus' birth. And Luke has it more than any other book of the Bible, more detail. And we read about the shepherds and the angels singing. And not long after Jesus is born, a few days later, Luke chapter 2 verse 22, when the time came for the purification of, According to the law of Moses, Jesus' parents brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit who would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And here, Simeon came in in the Spirit into the temple, and the parents brought in the child Jesus. At that moment, a greater glory entered this temple. It surpassed the first one because the Son of God was in it. Remember, this is the temple that the veil is torn in two. It's rendered no longer needed when Jesus died on the cross. These people back in Haggai have absolutely no idea that that's what God's talking about. But God knows what he's doing. God has a goal for this temple that's different than the first one. And the glory will be greater. And then he says, in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. I'm sure that the Jewish people that heard that probably thought in some way that that's political peace. The Jews always kind of saw it that way, that someday they would become like they were in Solomon's day. They would be the most powerful nation, the Persians who were over them at this particular point. They'd, they'd defeat them. They would be the, the number one nation again. And this temple might be the centerpiece, and it would be, you know, kind of the, the, the focal point of this peace that comes because they're this great messianic nation. But I believe when God says, in this place I will give peace, once again, he's referring to Christ. He's not referring to political peace. He's referring to spiritual peace. That the need for this temple, the sacrificial system, and everything else that goes on, God says, listen, I'm going to overcome all that with the whole point of all of this. It points to my son when he dies on the cross to save mankind. 
But in both of these points, when he says the latter glory of this house shall be greater and I will give peace, once again, the Jews at this time, 500 and some odd years before Christ was born, wouldn't know that, would they? It's not like they're going, I think I know what God's up to. We know this because we're in the future. They don't know it. But God tells them, if you remember back in verse 4, be strong and work. He has a plan that they don't know, but he's telling them your job, your picture, your point in my plan is to do what I've asked you to do. If you go to the last slide, there's some pictures I'll put up there. In 1912, there was a missionary by the name of William Leslie. William Leslie went to a, a part of Africa called, we call it today, the Congo. He went there to be a missionary. And he showed up to this place, and he spent 17 years being a missionary to this, this group of people, the Venga people. In the 17 years he was there, you know, he shared the gospel, tried to teach them some, of the, you know, some language skills, tried to teach them about education, tried to make an impact. But after 17 years, he had, I guess, as a falling out with some of the tribal leaders. They asked him to leave. He left. He went back and, and, and lived for about nine years. And he said he, he felt kind of like a failure, that he, you know, spent all this time, all this, this energy and effort for 17 years, almost two decades, and didn't think he had left much of an impact. Well, 80 years later, another group of missionaries went to the Congo, and they decided they were going to go and try and find this, this people group that they'd heard about. And so they took a Cessna plane for about two hours. After that, they hiked to a river, crossed a mile-wide river, and then hiked another 10 miles back into the jungle to find these people. And the lead missionary thought they might have heard, these people may have heard about Jesus, but he wasn't sure. But that if, even if they had heard about him, that it might just be the name. But when they got, these missionaries got to the Venga people, they were blown away with what they found. They found an entire network of reproducing churches. In fact, the one building there on the far left was a 1,000-seat cathedral that in the 1980s had gotten so full of people that had walked for miles around that some of the surrounding villages decided, well, we need to build our own churches. They had a church planting movement, but they didn't really, you know, even know what that was. And so they planted churches, and they had, they, they had made up their own Christian songs, and they would have, you know, sing-alongs and all of those types of things. And so these missionaries... We're blown away. Like, how, how in the, where did this come from? And talking to some of the older tribal leaders, they, they, they could remember a name, just one name, and they didn't know if it was first or last name. And so these missionaries, after traveling back, they begin to look up this name, and they discovered it was William Leslie. He had gone there and had done what he did and thought he had left no impact. But 80 years later, Thousands of people know Jesus Christ because of what he did. There's a part of me that likes to think he's up there in heaven and every day or two or week somebody else comes in and says, there's one of your failures who's here because you obeyed, because you persevered. There are moments in all of our spiritual walks where we are doing what we think God has called us to do. We know we're being obedient. We're following him. And it just doesn't make sense. We feel like a failure. Persevere. We don't always know the goal that God has. It could be 500 years in the future. But he knows what he's doing. He has the power to accomplish it. And we 
that are followers of Christ are under the blood of Christ and his covenant. Some of you are struggling. Persevere. I want you to bow your heads this morning. This is one of those messages, this, this is one of those sections of scripture that is, can be very timely for people. It's one of those that we may read as we go through, if we read through the Bible and get to the book of Haggai and get to chapter 2. Okay, we read, yeah, God says some things. But it's, it's, it's important to see how he deals with these folks that may be struggling. They're building this temple and it just doesn't, doesn't appear to be what they think it's going to be. And for so many of us, we have those spiritual moments where things are not the way we thought they would be. But God calls us to persevere. This morning, in a few moments, I'm going to pray and we'll be dismissed. We're not singing a final song this morning. I'm going to pray and we'll be dismissed. And some of you, you know, I, I always mention, I kind of stay down here at the front. Some of you, as says, I even mentioned in that little handout in the final little point, you may be going through a particularly difficult part of life. And I would encourage you, as the Bible says, to, to go and find a brother and sister in Christ to help you bear their burdens. Come down and talk to me, or this week, or even today is before you go, just find somebody and just say, i got to talk to you for a minute. Struggles are real sometimes. God's well aware of what was going on in the lives of his people here. But we can find the strength to persevere. Lord, I thank you for this passage. Lord, I thank you for what it teaches us and what it reminds us of. Lord, there are moments in our lives where we are confused, where things are not going the way we think they should be. Lord, uh, I pray that you give us the strength to have the faith to trust you, to do what we are called to do, to be obedient, despite the fact that our world may not be uh, progressing the way we think it should. Lord, I pray for those in this room this morning that are struggling, that are going through a particularly difficult phase of life. Lord, that you would give them strength, you would give them people in their lives that would come along beside them to bear their burdens. Lord, that we would be a, a, a church, a church family that strengthens each other and builds each other up so that we can go out and be poured out like a drink offering. Lord, I thank you and praise you for my brothers and sisters in Christ. I thank you for the encouragement that I get. Lord, I thank you for the faithfulness that I see. And Lord, most importantly, I thank you for your son. I thank you for the new covenant. Lord, I thank you for the enduring fact that because of what he's done, we have a great salvation. Lord, I thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. You are dismissed. We'll see you tonight.